You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College, uh, thanking you again for coming to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, if you're a first-time listener, please uh, consider subscribing on whatever podcatcher you enjoy. And if you like the show, give us a, a nice review. That helps other people find us. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you know that I recently went and attended a, uh, a really awesome conference in Bowling Green at Bowling Green State University about Batman. Uh, there's been a couple of shows about that already. Um, one of the things I was happy to do while I was there was meet some really interesting people. Uh, and one of them is uh, Joshua Wise. I met while I was there and uh, I'd asked him if he'd consider coming on the show to talk about his work in eschatology and apocalypse video games, pop culture, a whole array of really interesting um, intellectual intersections. And uh, and it just if you were listening to my uh, Bowling Green uh, recap episode, I happened to get the email confirming that he would be coming on the show during that. And I think I announced it live on air. And uh, and here he is, uh, live and in person, uh, Josh Wise. Uh, how you doing, Joshua? I'm doing well, Danny. How are you? I am doing um, better today uh, than I have been. <laughs> it's the end of the semester, and my brain is not. I'm working at about 75 percent right now, which uh-huh. is which is pretty good, actually, if you consider things. <laughs> um, so, Joshua, um, first of all, can you just I want to uh, have you plug your stuff. You have a really interesting book coming out, but in general, you are interested in a really interesting intersection of uh, theology and popular culture, largely. Uh, around the idea of eschatology and uh, apocalypse and that sort of thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about your intellectual interests before we get started? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I think my, my main area, so I'm a systematic theologian, and my main area of study is eschatology. And uh, that that has recently been in, in sort of two main areas of, of study. One is uh, constructions of heaven, I guess, uh, or at least what we what we should properly call heaven, and, and which is a little bit different than what gets popularly called heaven, right? Which is the new heavens and the new earth, the reconstructed cosmos, and the resurrected community. Uh, and I've been doing some work in looking at alternative ways of constructing that community in imagination, right? Because we don't have any, we can't look at it and say, oh, well, here it is. Uh, but um, sort of intellectual constructions that are proper objects of hope for human beings. Uh, as opposed to say like platonic spirits that are imprisoned in flesh okay. and can't wait to get out, um, and and sort of trying to understand what it, what what would the heavenly community look like if uh, if our sort of anthropological understandings are are even minorly accurate, right? Uh, human beings are social creatures and spiritual creatures and intellectual, and this is sort of a bit of a pushback against the Western tradition of Christianity that has often construed heaven as an intellectual pursuit and sort of a, a thing that, you know, say in Thomas Aquinas, we stand on a barren world and think about God, but you don't get to like fist bump your buddy or hug your mom or whatever, you know, like the physicality is sort of a, it's necessary, but it's kind of a footnote. 
Um, and with the work of people like N.T. Wright sort of recovering that the Christian hope is essentially the resurrection of the body. Um, and what does that community look like? I've, uh, I've been really interested in, in sort of ways to blend that idea, especially with the Greek concept of apectasis, this idea that heaven is actually an everlasting pursuit, uh, sort of an everlasting ascent into God. So that's, that's kind of half of it. The other half is that uh, more recently I've been very interested in this sort of early Christian problem of how do you reconstruct the picture of the end times now that Jesus has ruined it? Um, because <laughs> before Jesus, you have this very well-established picture, and of course there's variations to it, but there's this general narrative in first century Judaism and even first century Judaism before Jesus that is about you know, the Christ will come, he'll destroy the Romans. Uh, then the son of man appears in the sky and the, the dead are raised and, and there's a judgment. And then the wicked are destroyed in a fire and the righteous live on earth. And then Jesus ruins all that. He's the Messiah, but he doesn't destroy the Romans and he rises from the dead. Nobody else does. And then he goes away. Um, and so one of the, one of the intellectual problems I think is really interesting is you see multiple attempts in the new Testament, of people trying to put this picture back together again in light of Jesus. And so you get Paul and you get, um, second Thessalonians, you get the book of revelation in Matthew 25. And that stuff's really interesting to me about, um, well, they all did it differently. So how <laughs> do you try to create some sort of like. Uh, narrative that links them all together and tries to reconcile them, or do you acknowledge that, in fact, what we're dealing with here is uh, maybe more complicated than one narrative? Yeah, and for someone like me, like who grew up in sort of a you know generically evangelical sort of world, mm. um, it's always looks like sort of the uh, that that book that uh, what was the the, the Left, Left Behind, Behind series? series, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, but that really is a kind of rather postmodern reconstruction of um, a lot. It's it's a pastiche, um, if you if you will, of uh, a lot of it is different but it's traditions. not postmodern. It's third century. Well, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> right, like it's almost entire entirely Tertullian like his picture of like Antichrist and how that stuff goes that left behind series is oh it's patristic in that way yeah um oh, that's so shockingly you know <laughs> <laughs> that is shocking to me actually uh yeah I consider it just a kind of a popular culture th sort of version of, of all these kind of more feel uh deeply theological concepts but um and as you were speaking actually have you seen Endgame yet I have um I the image of Thanos after the snap um, I guess I'll spoil a little bit of Endgame. Uh, there is a we have a show planned. Uh, Matthew Brake is going to come on and talk with Nathan oh, sure. Gilmore and me about Endgame specifically. That'll that'll be coming up here in a few weeks probably. But um, so you have plenty of time to see it. But if you haven't seen it, close your ears for a couple seconds. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil much of the movie, but the beginning of the movie we see Thanos in the, his sort of garden planet after having achieved basically the end times. Right? He's achieved right. his ap apocalyptic, and it's just him alone in the garden. You know, picking those weird looking fruits. Right? And so uh -huh. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of what Aquinas, what you, how you were describing Aquinas's view of heaven. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Aquinas' view of heaven is very much the contemplative life. Of course, he would also argue, and he does in Summa Contra Gentiles, that um, eating is not appropriate for heaven um, <laughs> for, uh, for the reason that um, it's inappropriate that our bodies should grow so large in heaven that they would become like grossly large because it's also inappropriate that anything should leave the body uh, once it's become perfected. So no going to the bathroom in heaven 
Uh, so therefore, no eating in heaven because you'll uh, you'll grow to uh, ridiculous proportions then, since you can't get rid of the matter. Um, <laughs> Abjection ceases to be uh, in heaven. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's interesting. Well, yeah, and it's, so there are ways in which this intellectual interest of yours, this theological interest of yours, um, works itself out in a lot of popular culture. I've just sort of given you one example. Um, You were particularly writing about video games. Now, I have to admit total ignorance about video games. I really don't know much of anything about them. Um, But you have a book coming out in October called No Avatars Allowed. Do you want to pitch that a little bit? And I think it's related to a podcast you do, right? Yeah, so uh, back in 2009 or so, I met, uh, yeah, I guess it was 2009, I met Father Ben Wallace, who's an, who was at the time uh, at a seminary, Lutheran Theological Seminary, which is now sort of defunct and become part of U- U- United Lutheran Seminary. It's a very, uh, my, for my Lutheran brothers and sisters out there, I'm sorry for the loss of two <laughs> unique, different historical seminaries that have now just been mashed into one um but we we met and we uh were both fans of video games and and pop culture and we thought it would be a great idea to make a podcast in order for us to get a panel at pax um <laughs> uh and that was the mercenary uh concept behind it and so we created this podcast called no avatars allowed and a website called the cross and the controller and the idea was to just create a whole uh christian website but not evangelical uh sort of expressly not evangelical much more mainline and much more intellectually concerned than a lot of the video game stuff that we saw coming out of the evangelical community so um we created this website it went on for about a year and then ben had other obligations and had to kind of move on he had just had a kid and and uh you know, he was uh, finishing up seminary. So we put that all on hold for a number of years. And then we kind of got back to it last year. And uh, No Avatars Allowed is a podcast about video games and theology, though uh, it is a topic that's a little rough to do week by week. So we end up uh, touching on a lot of philosophy on, um, you know, sort of current events in video games. Uh, but also we just did a whole series on the cardinal virtues and video games. We did like an eight episode series on that. Um, we haven't really touched the theological virtues because that they're almost impossible to find in video games. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all now that's all part of a, a website and a network called the all ports open network, uh, all ports open.com. And that all sort of sits in the background of the book. No avatars allowed theological Reflec- reflections on video games that church publishing is putting out in October, which I think it's putting out like three or four days after my birthday. So it's a pretty nice birthday present. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, that is a book that sort of delves into, uh, well, it's sort of a hybrid because at first I thought I just wanted it to be a book of theology about video games. Um, and the publishers were like, well, no, uh, we we need to be able to market this to people who don't play video games in the church. So m- maybe the first half of the book is an argument for video games, uh, which which it is now. So sort of the first half of the book is why the church should be playing video games and why the church should be thinking about video games. And then the second half of the book is here's stuff that video games help us to think about better. Um, and, and just sort of as a microcosm of that, one of my favorite things to teach first-year theology students, which they hate going into it, but they actually end up knowing more, I think, than a lot of master's students about this stuff, 
is um, the uh, fourth and fifth century councils of the church on uh, the divinity of Christ and uh, the Trinity, and then the humanity of Christ and the relationships uh, of those two natures. And when you think about those things, video games actually really help us think through what does it mean to take on a nature? What does it mean to be a subject participating in a separate nature? What does it mean to take on new capacities because you have a nature, right? Like I can't throw fire out of my hands. Right. <laughs> but when I take on Mario nature, I can actually do that. Uh, and of course, there are limitations to the analogy. I don't take on forever Mario nature to myself the way that the second person of the Trinity takes on humanity. But, um, but when you look at someone like St. Athanasius from the beginning of the fourth century, he talks about capacities that God doesn't have, like the capacity to die. Okay. Um, and so for him, the flesh of, of humanity becomes the thing that allows him to meet death uh, in, in his own self in a way that, so this is a new capacity taken on mm -hmm. through nature. And this is really interesting because we experience this all the time in video games. And then if you take, you know, fifth century debates like with Cyril and Nestorius, the whole question of how many persons are there in the incarnation? Well, when, you know, I had a guy come into my a hobby store when I was like 22 with a Bible degree and nothing to do with it. Uh, so I ran to a, a hobby store for about six months and he came in and he was talking about playing D and D and like how he held the hammer of Thor in his hands. And I'm thinking like, okay, man, I'm a dork, but you're a real dork. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like you didn't hold the hammer of Thor in your hands. Like your character did or whatever. But I thought about that more and I thought, okay, but that's how we talk about it. That's mm -hmm. how we, we associate our subjectivity with this, smaller reality that we participated in man that's a lot like the incarnation and what these church fathers were trying to say um and so i think that video games really give us this sort of experimentation this tool they're sort of like angels for the medieval people right that they're an intellectual laboratory where you can kind of play with ideas and video games really help us see like how could the supernatural function? How could you know uh, you know a, a person enter into another realm and yet remain the same kind of person that they are? So I, I find it all very interesting, and the book kind of gets into a lot of those questions. Um, That's interesting. So. Um, you know, longtime listeners of the show will remember you know ah, a few months ago uh, an episode called Dungeon Masters and Baptist Pastors uh, I mm. interviewed uh, William Thomas Clapp who is a, a Baptist minister who actually runs a and uh, d, d game for other ministers and, and they oh, wow. uh, it was it was a really cool conversation uh, and I think a lot of what he was getting at in terms of the, the virtue of doing this activity is along these lines it's a way of sort of embodying the imaginative experience of, uh, of engaging with these deeper theological questions Questions. And right. um, uh, it's actually it's interesting to me because the college I'm working at, uh, I work at uh, Mount Aloysius College, I say as if it's a current thing. I hope this is the college <laughs> I will always work at. Uh, but the um, um, we're actually starting a uh, an esports kind of club team, uh, um, which is, I think, video games. I, and like I said, I know nothing about it. I don't know what games <laughs> they're playing uh, or anything like that. But I think um, there are a lot of people who sort of roll their eyes at that kind of activity, yes. but um, the way you're describing it, I think it could have, I mean, in the right hands uh, in terms of whoever is advising or coaching this team, um, could have this a very terrific um 
theological and pedagogical uh, like background to it. I think I think there's a really really great uh, relationship there, as you've described it right there. And so uh, you made me just a little bit more excited for our, our upcoming <laughs> esports team uh, starting in the fall there. So, um, um, and uh, another thing I wanted to sort of um, ask you about um, was how you like theologize certain video games. And so let me just kind of run one by you. Um, okay. Like sure. I said, I have very yeah. little experience um, playing video games in my adult life. I think I told you off air super Nintendo, I think was my last video game system before right. this Xbox. So I bought my kids. Um, and so I sometimes will go down to the basement and play this DC villains, uh, Lego video game sure. for uh, Xbox one that my, my youngest daughter um, really likes to play. And it's been a lot of fun exploring these worlds and trying out the superpowers of each of these different beings, right? Um, but there's also a way in which death isn't real in this. You can die sure. an unlimited amount of times. You just immediately reincarnate in the game. And it seems to me that that is a... Um, that poses a problem, a theological problem, um, but not necessarily a bad one. It's something that gives us a chance to think about uh, those sorts of issues. Is that the kind of... Um, approach that you take to um, exploring video games or do you get more kind of specific? Uh, yeah, well, this is there. There are these sort of general problems in video games, right? Where you run into these issues across almost every kind of game, right? Like whether this is Super Mario Brothers or um, even uh, even Mario Kart, where you're just driving along, right? Yeah. Like, well, in Mario Kart, if you fly off of a road in the middle of the air, well, there's a little guy in a cloud to come and pick you up and bring you back on. Like, well, that's not how real racing works. Like, <laughs> if you fly off the track, you're done. They're not, <laughs> they're not bringing you back for that. Uh, so, yeah, there is this sort of sense of uh, general problems and this question of death that uh, I was at. There's right now at the American Academy of Religion, there's like a three or four year uh, group. I, I think they call them a working group or something like that. They're not quite up to snuff of, of saying like, oh, you can be here every year. So uh, and it's called it's the uh, the religion and, and video games or the religious studies and video games, something along those lines. And they did. Two years ago, they were doing a panel on. Uh, death in video games and one of them w was talking about uh, when we talk about the concept of of dying and somebody brought up from the crowd brought up the fact that with the very first public video game this game um, Space War okay uh, that in like the very first article written about it when the ship was destroyed they called it dying mm. Like, so almost from the first moment of video games, we've been calling when that little icon down there blinks out of existence, we've been calling it death. Uh, and I think what's interesting about it and, and, and that kind of problem is, is, is it's almost always an anthropological question of identity, right? This question of how do we extend our identity to certain things and when... When that happens, we say, I died, right? But we don't do that with other tools, right? We don't do it with, say, chess. Uh, we don't, like, when our king uh, is in checkmate, we don't say, I I died. Right. Uh, if I'm hammering something and a, and a hammer breaks, I don't say, I died. Right. <laughs> like, I, I say the hammer broke. And so there's, there's a sort of 
interesting relationship that I think is is the general question and problem for a lot of this stuff. And that uh, and that you get those questions that cross all video games about what is happening here. And I'd, like, I, I know that I'm saying death analogously, right? Like, I don't actually think I'm dying. So what does that mean? Is it is it that my brain just simply uses that language because what's down there is more anthropomorphic? That might be true, but at the same time, in something like Space War or Asteroids or Pong or something like that, there is no anthropomorphism to the object. Right. You're a little triangle in asteroids, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so this is this is a difficult question. But then you get down into very specific questions of video games like, okay, so in Grand Theft Auto 5, uh, if I'm torturing somebody, what does this say? Like, what am I what am I doing in this? Is it okay because it's satire? Um, is it not okay even though it is satire? Um, mm. what, what am I doing? Uh, there was a big controversy around a video game called Bioshock Infinite, where one of the first things that you have to do, and this is, I think this is a game that's right up your alley, actually. I was listening to some of your discussion with Matthew and, uh, another guy about, um, the Bible signing. Oh yeah. Nathan. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yes, Nathan. Um, and there's a video game called Bioshock Infinite where you go in and you get baptized into this city that floats in the sky uh, that is sort of the embodiment of early 20th century American exceptionalism, and you're baptized into the founders in the name of the founders of Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson. Um, That's and you, <laughs> yeah, and you, you get, you know, your character gets dunked and all this stuff, and people return the game because they were like, "Well, I'm not a religious person. I, I don't like being baptized." <laughs> and it's like, "Whoa, wait, but you're not. This character is." Nor is it a, an official Christian baptism, anything like that. So yeah. you get these very specific questions that are unique only to those stories uh, or the mechanics of a particular game. Oh, that is really fascinating. I um, uh, will have to look into that. That sounds like it's something that is right up my alley. Um, and, and the question you pose about even Grand Theft Auto, about the the things that you do um, in the service of that game uh, and the kind of moral implications, I suppose, the ethical implications of doing that um, – so part of me like backs off and says, I, I think I, I really don't want to participate in that kind of activity. Right. Um, and so why should I be playing this game? But then I have to remind myself that I also make ethical arguments frequently about the value of consuming horror films. Like I really right. love You're horror right. films. Yeah. Um, and so how is one thing different from another, right? Uh, really, if I'm, I find a lot of value in the movie, in the Halloween franchise, for example. Sure. Um, and so how is my seeing good moral lessons and that sort of thing through the activity of watching horror functionally different than participating uh, in a more active way in uh, in Grand Theft Auto. And there may be a difference, but um, mm -hmm. I think asking the question is, is a worthwhile activity. And so, no, that, that's fascinating. Um, that's really great. Um, the uh, So that's your your book, uh, No Avatars Allowed. It's coming out in October. Um, we'll, uh, we'll put a link up to, is there a pre-order page for it or there anything? There is a pre-order page up on Church Publishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll put up a link to that um, in the show notes. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, Com. You'll find the show notes for this episode with a streaming link and uh, and some links below some, of some of the things that we talk about along the way here. Uh, and that's certainly one thing that we'll talk about. What I want to kind of focus in on for this discussion particularly, though, is the way in which these kinds of um, questions come to bear 
on apocalyptic sorts of narratives in uh, right. in popular culture. Endgame is a, is certainly um, an example um, that's dealing with very clear um, apocalyptic sorts of uh, of questions. We don't have to deal with that today since we hadn't really talked about that. But right. <laughs> um, uh, there are a number. So I, I how I kind of see this going is kind of running through a number of different um, forms of popular culture: video games, movies, comics, and uh, and you maybe give me an example of of the way that kind of secular um, popular culture um, picks up these like theological questions. Um, does that say, sound like a good plan? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, the one thing you had brought up is sort of Mad Max, uh, uh, that that whole sort of post-apocalyptic uh, landscape in Australia, right? As, uh, right. As an example of this. And I started rewatching, it's been years since I've seen those movies, um, but I started rewatching Mad Max, the first one last night. Um, and it surprisingly holds up quite well. It's actually a pretty, yeah. Yeah, a pretty that darn good pretty. It's a pretty darn good movie, still actually. Um, and of course, Fury Road is is I think a really spectacular movie. Um, and so, um, what do you what do you have to say about the that the, that that franchise? Yeah, so I mean, what's interesting is that that franchise is, is sort of you know it lives on its own in some ways, where it's the Mad Max series, and you know it's it's very good in and of itself. But it also sort of lives in this middle ground between its. Um, to some degree, it's influencers, right? You have this very, very, very long history that probably extends back to some degree to 750 years before Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> to, uh, you know, to expressions of uh, societal destruction that, you know, in some ways, and I'm, I'm sure there are earlier versions of this but um, that I'm not familiar with, but you get the secularized version of this Christian narrative of destruction at the end of the world uh, that again sort of comes out of that who knows what to do with the apocalyptic vision now that Jesus has risen from the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the sort of secularized version that we get, that the earliest that I'm familiar with is H.G. Wells' you know, sort of War of the Worlds type scenario where human society is deeply threatened by not just technology, but by other powers right. uh, that, that exist. And you, you get these pictures of societies. Uh, one of my favorite to bring up, and this was something that we read. This is one of the situations where you read something in high school and then it sticks with you. And, uh, you know, at the time you're like, well, why am I reading this? <laughs> um, did you see Wally? Um, I have not seen Wally actually. It's an oversight on my part, but, um, um, I, I didn't love Wally, but I, the whole time I watched that, I was like, oh, this is E.M. Forrester's The Machine Stops. Okay. This is, uh, you know, this short story from 1909 where society is living underground in a technology bunker, essentially getting all of their media pumped into them. They discuss every, they talk over technology and all of these things that essentially is the internet now. Yeah. Um, and it's about, you know, a guy who sort of rises up after humanity has been uh, sort of weighed, uh, laid waste by its technological pursuits. Okay. And so th this sort mm. of Mad Max viewpoint uh, of the post-societal humanity, yeah. right, that isn't entirely clear in the first movie that this is a post-apocalypse. It's it's sort of a broken down society, but yeah. you don't really until the second one get the whole like, oh, this is post-nuclear war and um, 
you know, and, and we're dealing with all the effects of that. So that series, you know, it has this ancestry, I guess, to a degree that includes uh, uh, like Harlan Ellison's short story, A Boy and His Dog from 1969. Right. Um, where you have this question of what does it mean to be human when society has collapsed uh, and how do we express humanity? What's important? Um, you know, and and. So for me, Mad Max exists as a sort of like, it's cool on its own, but what it has been influenced by and then what it influences, what it actually shapes going forward, which probably the for video game people, the biggest influence is the Fallout series. Okay. Um, and, and its predecessor, the video game Wasteland, uh, which is this. I mean, so heavily influenced by Mad Max that you, uh, you know, you have a guy wearing a leather jacket and... <laughs> You have a dog uh, with you um, very much like in the, uh, I want to say, is it the sequel that Max has a dog? Oh, um, gosh, yeah. Like I said, I just started watching the original yeah. last night and uh, I can't remember. Um, but you very you have this very clear, and, and then the dog ends up being both a reference to, I think, the second Mad Max movie and um, a boy and his dog because uh, he's basically called dog meat, which is the thing that the dog in a boy and his dog doesn't like to be called because okay. he's of course a psychic dog okay uh who can talk to his master oh that's in, interesting in a boy and his this dog. is like adventure time actually have you uh, <laughs> have you ever watched <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you it's very different than adventure time <laughs> a boy and his dog not to spoil that short story uh it was also made into a movie in 1975 which then also influences of course uh mad max right and at 75, it's a it's a post apocalyptic a post apocalyptic movie with Don Johnson. Uh, yeah, I do know as, that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is that they? You know, they meet a young woman in a vault, uh, or they meet a young woman and they and she's in the process of being uh, assaulted by some people. Uh, they save her, and then at the end of that story, because she's getting between uh, the the two main characters, the boy and his dog, they kill her and eat her. Mm. Um as uh, as a bonding activity uh sort of at the end of that story <laughs> so it's slightly different than adventure time we'll, we'll, um, <laughs> we'll save that one for the christian feminist podcast they yeah. can they can handle the, the, the ramifications of that which you should be yeah. listening to if you're not by the way um, um yeah wow okay um <laughs> but yeah so uh, max's uh, you know sort of place in the canon is really interesting because w what it does is it it sort of exemplifies what happens when this narrative of the end gets secularized. Yeah. Right. Is that, well, you've got two options. Either it's the end. Uh, well, I guess it's three options. First, you really leave it religious. Yeah. And it's the end. And then you have God's post note, right? Like to the world. Or you could think of the world as a preamble to God's actual story. Okay. You take God out of the picture and now you have two options. <laughs> Either it's the end, and then there are no more stories to tell. Right. So good luck telling your post-apocalyptic story when there's nobody around. Yes. Or uh, it's not quite the end, right? Like it's the end of a, a cycle or an era, or maybe what you're doing is you're in the you're in this sort of post-note to humanity, and humanity really is going to uh, be blotted out, but it hasn't been quite yet. Yeah. So you have these stories then that can exist in the secular version of this this picture that simply can't exist in the original religious picture to a degree. Although I would argue if you go back to the original religious picture of where all this comes from, 
these post-apocalyptic pictures that we see now are actually more akin to the Hebrew scriptures Hmm. early versions of where this idea comes from, which is this idea of the day of the Lord, Mm -hmm. where the Lord is going to smite Israel and then Judah. But there's always a remnant. There is a post-apocalypse to that degree. And that's a bit anachronistic. Apocalypse as a a concept doesn't really show up until post-Babylonian exile of 4th century or so. But w- the way we've kind of come to use the term um, in that the the great co- societal conflagration, right? Uh, that's actually more akin to so, sort of what Amos is talking about in the 8th century to Israel and to what someone like Jeremiah or Ezekiel are talking to uh, Judah about, where you are going to have a destruction, but there is going to be a story afterwards. Yeah. Um, it actually reminds me, and I'm the name is escaping me um, because it is the end of the semester, so sure. words are hard to come by. Uh, the around the time, uh, what seventy A.D. or something? There's that that cult that um, uh, that died fighting the Romans in Jerusalem on the top of that mountain, Mas- uh, Masada. Masada, yes. Um, and so they're seemingly part of this kind of apocalyptic tr- um, tradition in that that Jewish form. Uh, am, am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly something to that. I think, so what you end up having is the, the, the Jewish revolt in 66. Mm-hmm. That is this uprising that is, you know, one of two major uprisings. The next one is the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, which is clearly messianic, uh, where there's a sense that Bar Kokhba is himself Messiah, you know, son of the star. Uh, and, and, and it fails. Right. Um, And this sort of messianic revolution in 66 that I'm not aware of any particular figure, right, that's associated with this. And I and people who know that era better than I do might be able to say who that was. But there does seem to be the sort of messianic nationalistic sense that Israel is going to rise up and reclaim. And Masada ends up being this place where uh, those hopes are clearly dashed. But the people who are there aren't going to succumb to the Roman Right, so it's less, in some ways less of a cultic uh, move and more of a you know um, well we won't we know what happened to Jerusalem they crucified everybody there yeah right uh, it's it's a better deal here I think that if we take our own lives yeah uh, than to just be nailed to the wall literally yeah so uh, yeah but there is that sort of apocalyptic sense because it's all against the backdrop of this idea that the new the new Ionios, the new age, it will come when Israel rises and defeats the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, and so this is why you get in First Corinthians, uh, Paul's absolute wrestling with this idea of like, how the hell could Jesus have been the Messiah? Yeah, like how is that possible? It doesn't look anything like the Messiah. Yeah, uh, like, and and there's all sorts of other reasons why he shouldn't be the Messiah too. Uh, and so this sort of apocalyptic framework that they had that, um, you know, it gets wildly reinterpreted into that sort of picture by, by third and fourth century church fathers that we now recognize in left behind. Yeah. Uh, but that, that sense of, yes, it is, but it's always right up until Christianity, right? Right up until, uh, and then, you know, sort of post first century Christianity, it's very politicized. Right. It's very much about the secular world mm-hmm. and the material world and all of those things. So, yeah, that, that first century revolt certainly has 
a lot of roots and sort of what you might call meaning horizons around it, uh, you know, for that whole apocalyptic narrative. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, incidentally, we should like recognize that apocalypse doesn't just mean like the end. I mean, it means a revealing, right? It's right. like, there's like a, a, a truth. There's like a teleology that everything has been building toward kind of right. Um, yeah. Right. And it's very specifically a literary format. Yeah. Uh, so like if you talk to a, a you know, a biblical uh, scholar about apocalyptic, yeah. it is this literary format that appears in like the fourth century. And there's a lot of debate about, where does it come out of? Yeah. Does it come out of prophetic tradition? Does it develop out of a sort of a holiness tradition or a wisdom tradition? You know, those sorts of things. Is it, does it have more in common with the prophets? Does it have more in mm. common with, you know, uh, like a book like Ecclesiastes or something like that? Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, visions in the sky. Someone shows it goes up into heaven and sees visions and, you know, they're told about the end. Yeah. And and it's just fascinating to me for all the, you know, there's just sort of this cultural assumption that we're sort of a, a post-religious society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the most popular forms of popular culture are all like extremely apocalyptic. I mean, the, the whole zombie phenomenon of the last 20 years sure. has been, um, that that's deeply rooted in this. I mean, you can say Game of Thrones, which I don't really watch. I mean, I've never watched, but um, uh, is is building towards this sort of final Armageddon sure. battle, mm-hmm. right? Um, all of this, uh, the Marvel movies have been building towards this Infinity Gauntlet um, narrative. And so despite the fact that we're this kind of supposedly irreligious society, we still have these kind of ultimate religious concerns about sure. Um, and And so I think what your work is one of the ways in which it's really interesting is that you're looking at the ways in which these visions of apocalypse look different without a kind of God, uh, like overseeing it all. Right. And, and so, uh, in these, uh, in these apocalyptic narratives. And so one, I just showed my class, uh, I, t- I taught a class this semester on, uh, the literature and art of Pittsburgh. And so I wanted to show a George Romero movie. And, uh, and so we watched land of the dead. Um, mm-hmm. um and actually just a couple of weeks ago, I got to meet big daddy, the, uh, the uh, sentient zombie from that movie. Mm. Uh, he was at Steel City Con, <laughs> and I got my picture taken with him. He was awesome. Um, but the, uh, um, the the kind of the premise of that movie is that after the zombie apocalypse, right? So after the end of all these things, the the society reconstructs, right? Exactly like what it was before, right? It, there's no sort of creating anything new. There's a uh, mm, um, mm-hmm. you have this kind of um, class. Uh, structure that's built around the geography of Pittsburgh because it's a supposedly safe um, uh, geographic location from the zombies, which is why Pittsburgh exists now because it was a, a great place for a a, a, a fort uh, in the in the right. Indian Wars, right? And so, um, but the um, uh, the the society that reconstructs in that post-apocalyptic world just tries to reconstruct what already was, right? There's no vision about looking, moving past that towards something right. new. Uh, and I think that, that this, the same thing can be sort of said about the Road Warrior movies, right? The, the Mad Max movies, um, in that it's just certain aspects of the society that they inherited get reemphasized in these different worlds, right? And so Fury Road is clearly about the reinstitution of um, patriarchy, right? I mean, it's clearly got this sort of feminist bent uh, to it. And so, um, and I think those movies all sort of take a different slant on what aspect of the society is being reconstructed 
for George Romero, it's capitalism, right? And, and so right. Um, for you know Fury Road, it's something else. Um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, yeah, sure, right. So what, it's not just the reconstruction of those things, but it's reconstruction unbound, right? And yes. and I think that that the the Mad Max stuff is a really good example of that, where it's not just power, it's not just patriarchy, right? It's not just um, because it is power of all kinds, mm-hmm. right? But it's uh, it's that unbound from social mores and norms, and so you have these extremities of like self mutilation, of mutation, of mm-hmm. all of these things that uh, that that society puts limits on, uh, and so in, in some ways, and you know, this is what the post apocalyptic story is often very good for, which is again sort of this uh, this sort of laboratory of anthropology of yeah. like um and and i, I want to say when i use the word anthropology i mean it much more in the theological sense than in the uh archaeology like sense the 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 study of culture but more of what does it mean to be human okay. right so if uh one of one of the good examples of this i really love because it's so obvious in it because they actually just come out and say it in the movie uh is uh 28 days later yeah so in 28 Days Later, right, what is that movie about? Well, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's about what's worth living for. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have these moments where the main character meets other people. And, you know, the first time, you know, uh, uh, Kieran, what's his last name, uh, uh, played, uh, you know, the the Scarecrow. scarecrow yeah. Uh, uh, Killian Murphy. Killian thank Murphy. You, thank you. Uh, Killian Murphy goes and, you know, he meets a girl. And she's like, so what do you think is going to happen? We're going to fall in love. We're going to have sex. We're going to do all those things. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a sort of another moment in the movie where he sort of asks this question of like, well, okay, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? What's what's worth it? And by the end of the movie, you get to the point where, okay, well, the reason to survive is each other, mm-hmm. right? Like we we survive because of each other, and that's uh, that's what makes wor- life worth living. And so it's this question of of why do we exist and you get to boil that down when everything else is stripped away. Yeah. So I think what a lot of these, like something like Mad Max uh, lets you do, uh, and then something like 28 Days Later lets you do, is on one side, you get to say, here's a bad thing in society. Look what happens when we take away all of our progress and our philosophy and our society and all of these things that allow us to get over these base animal instincts, mm-hmm. right? Because base animal instincts, the strongest survives. So if you're constructing a society around that, it's going to be a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas something like 28 Days Later says, uh, okay, well, what if we strip out the rest and we get to ask basic human questions? Instead of being re- resorting to our basest instincts, what does it mean to be genuinely human? Mm-hmm. And then we get to transcend our basest human instincts, right? Because then the zombies get to be the basest human instincts. Mm-hmm. They get to be the thing that's just out there to eat, yeah. to kill. Uh, and I think, you know, this, again, sort of shows it as this laboratory that we get to ask these questions about us. Yeah, and I think with that movie particularly, the the one of the i think interesting innovations i'm not a huge zombie movie fan like nor I, am I. I i find them just depressing i i'm too much of uh-huh. a humanist to i appreciate <laughs> uh, I, I just i find the whole thing depressing um i do find them interesting and, and i'm 
I'm aware enough of them, and I, I, it's sure. not like I I dislike them, but they're just not something I gravitate towards. But one of the things I do like is when they bring some innovation on the uh, mm-hmm. story. That's why I like Land of the Dead. You have the the zombies becoming aware, um, and then in this case, there's like a time limit to the zombie apocalypse because in a in a while they will just die, right? Uh, right. They they won't they won't linger forever, and as soon as they're gone. Presumably, you have a clean slate to reconstruct something new, right? Mm. Um, you don't have to deal with the existential threat forever. You just have to right. survive for 28 days, right? And so, or however long it is, um, the, the zombies will starve and, and die. And so, um, that there's a, a bit more of a hopeful uh, element brought into that narrative, I think, by that little innovation. I think that's pretty right. interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, uh, many other things we could talk about we, as you were talking someday, I do want to do a full on episode about children of men. Um, oh, sure. Because yeah, absolutely. that's another movie that it's base question is, I mean, there's no zombies, but I mean, there's just humanity is petering out. Right. And what, mm-hmm. what, what is, what makes life worth living if there's nothing to leave anything for, right? Uh, right. If there's no, uh, if there's no subsequent generations. And so th- that movie I think is just so uh, amazing in, in so many ways. And, uh, and so I definitely want to uh, take the time someday to do a full episode about that movie. Um, yeah, but it absolutely. seems to be also related to this, um, to this question about um, finding meaning uh, in a society in which meaning is collapsed. Right. And right. I think, yeah. Well, I mean, this is also a question of, you know, this is why we've, to some degree, after the Enlightenment, once science, once our, once we become obsessed with inductive logics outcomes, mm-hmm. right, as opposed to obsessed with deductive logics, ability to give us truth, mm-hmm. right? So the you know, people really rag on the Middle Ages. And, and you know, I'm a good Protestant. I, you know, the Catholic <laughs> Church is, is not my... my uh, my place of worship, uh, even though I work at three Catholic institutions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the medieval period is ultimately, at least for a select few people, the height of logic in Western society. It, it is the age of deduction. And we once we became obsessed with induction, with, with, with formalized induction in the form of science, then, uh, you know, it becomes not just a tool it takes on mythological proportions in our mind and becomes the source of meaning and mm-hmm. identity, right? So that we we don't just think about ourselves as creatures who are, you know, rational creatures who are capable of all sorts of things that other creatures on earth aren't. We are now simply those beings who have common ancestors with apes, mm-hmm. right? And so it becomes an identity formation issue as opposed to just information about us. It's yeah. really helpful. Um, and perhaps really informative about our relationship with the world in a, a theological construction. So yeah. we become obsessed with this as a mythology. And as you know, as we've sort of learned, part of the Western mythological structure involves Ragnarok. It involves the death of the gods and what happens, especially in, you know, and I don't know that anybody's done a real good study of this, and I might be drawing connections that aren't there, but, you know, in an uh, Sanglo, sort of Anglophonic world uh the the death of the gods as sort of an ancestral reality for a culture is very much there and you know the sort of uh we will all go down in the twilight odin will go down thor will go down um and then maybe if all goes well balder will rise and there will be a new world Mm -hmm. um that that sense is going to i think that narrative is going to especially when you start to get into 
uh, early 20th century uh, and and the sort of rebirth of the interest in Germanic stories and mythology, we're going to re-import Ragnarok into our into our story yeah. about our gods, right? And and what happens when our gods die? Yeah. And technology is that big one. Yeah. Right. Uh, technology and society are our big gods. What happens when they die? What what you know? What is that? What is that twilight of the gods look like? Yeah. And that's where Nietzsche um, is instructive, right? I mean, uh, right. to to warn us about the being too proud of what we what we replace God with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a that's a great point. Um, yeah, uh, one thing that you had put on the list is Fallout. Now, this is a video game uh, that I I don't know anything about. It just so happens, though, I think the day that you sent me this email um, with this uh, with this list of possible topics, I had a student who's writing a uh, a paper about H.P. Lovecraft's. Um, story Pickman's model, and, mm. uh, and and he actually in his presentation on on his paper um, meant created a link to Fallout uh, because there's a character called Lovecraft or something in the uh, in the uh, somehow H.P. Lovecraft is referenced in this, and I don't remember sure. how exactly. Um, uh, and so it was just. I would love to know what you have to make of this. I don't have anything to bring to this part of the conversation because I know nothing about it. But it is it is a, a kind of a post-apocalypse video game, right? It is absolutely, and it's interesting. It has its. Uh, I, I'm I'm particularly interested in in sort of pop culture lineages mm-hmm. and the uh, uh, sort of the second video, uh, the second um, not video game but role play game to ever get made, Tunnels and Trolls. Uh, you know, was made in, in Arizona as sort of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek knockoff of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Uh, um, you know that that company that sort of comes out of that of fly, uh, flying buffalo games that makes tunnels and trolls. There were some people who were involved in that, including a guy. Uh, you know, the, the, a couple of guys who end up making interplay games, who end up making the video game Wasteland in, in the late '80s, which becomes a spiritual precursor to Fallout. And okay. it is this. It's a post-nuclear world uh and um the original fallout game you you've part of a vault that has been sealed underground you know for a couple hundred years uh after uh the nuclear war happened between america and uh china actually uh, i i think and you kind of come out of the vault. You need to fix some stuff in your vault, and you go around this wasteland where some people have come out of their vaults and established society. There's a lot of mutated animals and stuff like that. And so it's basically a Dungeons and Dragons video uh, a game, but set in this world of technology, where where in some ways the aesthetics of technology stopped in the 1950s. Okay. So there is this aesthetic of America during the height. Uh, or at least one of the peaks, let's say, of the Cold War, right? Okay. Where there is this fear of, of nuclear war starting to rise. And uh, a lot of the music in the games is based out of the 40s, uh, the 30s and the 40s. Um, and it's very much sort of Americana seen through the lens of destruction. Okay. So idealized America seen through the lens of what do how do we blow it up what does it look like after we blow it up Mm -hmm. and what does the american landscape look like after we blow it up and those games end up getting the rights to those games end up leaving interplay and going to bethesda games who then make fallout 3 which is based in washington dc 
uh, and the surrounding sort of DC metro area. And so you're going around a mutant filled Washington, DC, uh, listening to radio stations and doing missions and collecting armor and weapons and, you know, sort of trash from all over the, the remnants of, you know, uh, the capital and you're going to famous places. Um, then they did one out in new Vegas or what they call new Vegas, uh, but the Las Vegas area. And then the most recent one they did was up in Boston. Okay. And that one had sort of more of a minute men colonial sense to it. And what you get out of it, I think is this idea of what does it, what does society look like in different locations based on the found history okay right so the people up in boston really identified to some degree with colonial america because that's the sort of found history there okay uh and so you're kind of going around and looking at america through the eyes of a reconstruct of many reconstructed societies and also these sort of different factions that you can align yourself with so weirdly enough uh, in the New Vegas game, you can either align yourself with the Strip, uh, which is a bunch of like 1930s-style mobsters, okay, uh, or you can uh, there's a there's the the guardsmen from California who are sort of a, a National Guard type, and then there's a guy just called Kaiser, okay, leading a legion of Centurions essentially. Uh, against the local area. And you imagine that this is because Caesar's palace is out there. Right. And they, they base themselves on the fact that there was this thing out there and they found some history books and they base themselves on this. Okay. So it is very much, I mean, it, it's tongue in cheek in a lot of ways. It's also serious in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot of, um, I would say, uh, sort of product um, uh, fetishism in those in those games so okay. you you in the most recent one there's an expansion where you go to well throughout many of the games there's just a, a drink called nuka-cola okay. <laughs> uh that's their sort of version of coca-cola but they have a lot of different but the idea is that you create this this soda in an atomic age yeah so uh they have a quantum version which is glowing um and all of these things and in the most recent game, you can there's an expansion where you can go to Nuka World, which is their Disney World, but okay. it's all based around basically their version of Coca-Cola. Okay. So you meet you see mascots, you see robots, you see rides that are all based on the sort of product fetishism as well. There's sort of a commentary on American culture as um you know, what does it look like in its ruin? Yeah. And, and the caps of those bottles are the currency in this world. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's it's there's a lot there that is an interesting sort of inspection of American culture, but also, uh, you know, just pure entertainment. Yeah. And then I mean, so that gets me I mean, if I'm thinking theologically about this uh -huh. um, and incidentally, before I get there, uh, this also reminds me of a really great sci fi book by Samuel R. Delaney called The Einstein Intersection. If you've ever read. Oh, that. no, I haven't. Um, yeah, there's these basically aliens who are kind of beings of light that have inhabited a post-apocalyptic earth. Um, and they kind of take bodily form um, up, off the cues of the culture they received. So okay. like, the Beatles are part of their mythology along with Jesus Christ and the Orpheus myth and all this sort of thing all come together in this very interesting postmodern way. And, and I think what is interesting about that is it reminds me very much of um, – 
people who listen to the show are going to get they're going to start laughing. There's going to they're going to make a bingo card of every time I, I mention this. <laughs> but um, James K. A. Smith's uh, cultural liturgies project uh, about the way in which our sort of habits um, uh, are, are become liturgies that um, define what oh, we sure. worship, right? And so, um, and I think that the video games like this, from a theological standpoint, can point out the way in which our kind of daily habits create our value systems and, and, and that sort of thing. Right. And, and I think you can actually pair this fallout narrative up with James Smith's book really, mm. really neatly uh, the way you describe it at least. And so, um, yeah, it would be a really inter- fun exercise to do actually uh, for some yeah. church out there. <laughs> I, one of the, one of my critiques of the fallout series is they rarely discuss the fact that um, in, in a situation like this, uh, religion would be on the rise, mm-hmm. right? Like that. In fact, uh, if you blow up the world, people are going to start flocking to religion. Yeah. Um, and uh, in all of their games, there's about two churches yeah. uh, and uh, and not much other than that, except for a religion that worships the atom bomb. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there, there is this group called Children of the Atom. And so what you don't really have, right, is the uh, a lot of um, the uh, making into liturgy that which happened before sort of uh and given new meaning mm-hmm. right that that you don't have you know like oh well we used to run around this this green area with these four bases uh and you know and do all of the stuff and now we're going to do that once a week uh you know or or once every two weeks as a as a symbol of our devotion exactly right? and and one of smith's famous um analogies is he he reads going to a football game as a, as a church service. Right. Um, right. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's conceivable that um, cut off from the original context of society and just looking at its artifacts, um, you would see what we actually are worshiping as a society. Right. Um, right. And, you're, right. and it's not, you're not wrong in uh, it's not divine and it's not sacred, um, but it, it still functions in that liturgical way. Right. And, yes. And, right. Yeah. And that, that's amazing. Um, yeah. I would have never, like I said, this is an area that I know way too little <laughs> about, um, but you've uh, really got me kind of interested in it. Um, Stephen King real quickly, Stephen King stand is, uh, yeah. is kind of one of the preeminent, you know, apocalyptic narratives of our lifetime, right? And so, right. Um, do you, what do you have to say about that? I intru- I interviewed um, Doug Cowan about his book on the- Stephen King as a theologian um, a few uh, oh, so, so a couple months ago. And so, uh, um, if you want a, more information on Stephen King, go back to listen to that episode. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this particular narrative. Yeah, it's funny actually. Matthew and I have been talking about maybe doing some stuff about Stephen King with his pop culture theology stuff yeah. uh because and actually i have that one last little plug i have mm-hmm. <laughs> uh i'm doing a book for him right now on uh eschatology and pop culture oh right so uh so we'll be sort of doing an academic look at a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here and, and hopefully more um but yeah the stand is an interesting book the stand is uh i i've encountered the stand three times i i read it most of the way through as a high schooler, I read about a thousand pages of the 1100 page version that I had. And I don't know why I stopped. Um, <laughs> I had already seen the TV series, um, which I liked very much. Yeah. And I thought, OK, well, that's it's I know how it ends. Um, and, you know, I had been told that the TV series in the book ended quite differently. And they don't really. Uh, there's more to the book, of course. But they're uh, the, the sort of moment in Las Vegas that 
is the sort of climax of that story is almost identical. Um, and then I've just recently reread it. And the stand is fascinating because it gives you this post-apocalyptic view of America that, uh, that you know, Stephen King very, uh, you know, I think very wisely puts a character in Glenn Bateman, who is this sort of uh, sociologist who gets to speak in some ways about what's happening, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like what's actually going on, how are people acting and how will people be reacting to things? And what I like about the stand, I don't know, I like a lot of things about the stand, but what, one of the things that stands out to me about it is that uh, Stephen King makes no bones about that. This is a, this is not a secular post-apocalypse, right. right? This is in fact the religious post-apocalypse this, or this is the religious uh, you know, um, and and in some ways less an apocalypse uh, in the technical sense, and more uh, the last battle. Mm -hmm. Right? This is uh, you know taking another term that has been taken out of its original context, an Armageddon. Right? You know, uh, this is not the Mountain of Megiddo, but it is <laughs> uh, the battle that takes place there. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it is uh, it's a story that you know essentially says. Uh, yeah, you can try to put society back together again. And all of that is going to always have something of the dark man in it. Mm -hmm. um, but when you face the dark man himself, you can't rely on that, right? That he's that, in fact, your society is not a shield from him. Mm -hmm. So you need to do something else. You need to actually rely on this transcendent reality that is, you know, at least in Stephen King's mythos, even deeper and higher than something like the turtle that sort of is, is one of the great sort of figures in it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, um, yeah, that, that there is this power beyond, beyond all things that you have to align yourself with. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I like the stand quite a bit for that. Although as a theologian, I critique Stephen King's theology. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I, I don't think that God asks for sacrifice just for the sake of sacrifice. Right. Um, you know, uh, and and the the picture of post-apocalypse there is really incidental in some ways, right? It's the setting for conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I think in a lot of ways it stands out from a lot of these other things. It's, it's, it's less a question about what it means to be human it's less a question about what it means to you know what is important about society what's destructive about society and much more a question about just good and evil right as ultimate realities um which is maybe why it's so it continues to be relevant i i if i heard that they're in development for some a new series of the stand because i mean in the day and age in which we live with you know the golden age of tv with these serialized mm -hmm. dramas it seems like a perfect moment to do a kind of a, a modern you know take on the stand because i think that the the format would match the length of the scope of that book finally right right uh yeah i i actually haven't heard if they've done it i know that stephen king is doing a thing maybe with jj abrams about one of his other works okay. uh and certainly they've they're remaking it which yeah um i'm still a fan of the miniseries over <laughs> over the movie i know that i know that technically the you know but for my money uh you know it's uh 
you know, it's John Ritter and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Tim Curry and all of them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it wouldn't shock me and I would love to see it. Uh, even though I still have that miniseries in my head and I still have uh, Dauber from, uh, from coach yeah, as, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, as the, as the one guy whose name is now escaping me. Yeah. Um, Molly Ringwald and yeah, Molly Ringwald and <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, what's his name from Apollo 13? Oh, Gary uh, Sinise. That's Gary right. Gary Sinise, oh, you know, God, I forgot um, about that. right. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a good mini. I haven't seen in a long time. It might not hold up, but <laughs> yeah, well, you did better with me with the book. I got like 600 pages through it twice. Uh, and, oh, wow, and, okay. and I never could quite finish it. Um, uh, even though I really enjoyed it. I, I should, uh, you know, take some time to uh, to get through it again now. Um, um, I did want to talk. I don't want to hold you too long, but one more thing I do want to talk about is um, Kingdom Come, uh, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Mark Wade, um, Alex Ross uh, Justice League comic book. Um, yeah. is, is a really fascinating. I mean, explicit um, uh, reference to biblical end times, right? They use that right. language throughout. Um, what are your thoughts? First of all, the Alex Ross's art is mythological uh, in yes. its form, right? And so it fits the the scope of that narrative um, extremely well, right? And so it's a beautiful looking comic book. Um, it's got a very kind of it's swinging for the fences sort of narrative that's going for mm-hmm. here. Uh, what are your thoughts on that book? So, okay, so I'm going to get even, I'm going to get, again, sort of like ancient text geeky here. Uh, And um, there is this, so there's this, again, this heritage to something like Kingdom Come that I think is is worth noting. And there's a certain school of biblical scholars who uh, sort of beat this drum a lot. And that's uh, the sort of background of the Book of Enoch. Okay. That is behind all of this. Uh, Right. And so. Enoch as a as a whole construction is probably sometime around the time of Jesus, but you get this first part of the Book of Enoch, Book of the Watchers, mm-hmm. that lives. It's probably three hundred and fifty years or so before Jesus. Uh, and what what we see there, if uh, someone like biblical scholar Mark Smith is right about monotheism and Judaism, is the sort of first extant construction of what do you do with evil now that the God of Israel has become God of the universe. Mm. So that this sort of narrative of that the God of Israel had been a local God in, in much of our really ancient texts, like any other God that lives sort of at the top of a hierarchy of gods. And that when you get to Babylon, you start to encounter Zoroastrianism and this concept of a universal God. That then, uh, that then you see expressed to some degree for the first time in this book of Enoch in a mythological format where evil has now been pushed down into the messenger class of the heavenly court. Okay. So you um, you have these angels who look down at Earth, right? It's basically fan fiction of Genesis chapter six, right? Okay. Right? You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's this uh, you know uh, story where um, it's also the the kind of root story for a lot of the ancient alien enthusiasts. Um, yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Um, this is one of those good examples where the uh, the the mundane explanation might not be as interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so you you have these angels who look down at humanity and go, "Oh, women are hot. You can have sex with them." Um, and it's sort of like a really bad. It's sort of like American Pie. Yeah. Where um, the angels all say like. 
we need to make a deal with each other because I bet if I go down there and I start doing this, you aren't going to come with me. So we need to all make a pact that we're all going to go down to earth and get late. Um, so there's like these 20 captains of angels and they go down uh, to earth and they do this and they sleep, sleep with human women and they have children with them and they're the Nephilim and all of this stuff. But it's that moment where you introduce the these really important figures uh now the bad guy isn't called satan yet mm -hmm. um but you introduce for the first time figures like michael gabriel and Raphael, um and also uriel but he gets way less play mm -hmm. in in the bible so you have this sort of story then of this war between angels mm -hmm. right the heavenly figures this is also a really interesting background to the beginning of the gospel of Luke mm. um, because Gabriel shows up to Mary. And of course, the first thing he says to her is don't be afraid, mm -hmm. right? We normally contextualize that as like, well, he's an angel. She's a lady. Of course, she's going to be afraid because he's spiritual. But if you put his context back into the book of Enoch of angels coming down from heaven and ravishing women physically yeah. to have children with them, that yeah. do not be afraid takes on a very different context. Yeah. That oh. this isn't what it's about. In fact, this is a totally different story. This is an angel's coming down to have children with women. This is God impregnating a woman by the power of God. Yeah. Uh, and You're so the sort of Enoic, Enochic background of, of Luke is, is really interesting. You're going to ruin every Christmas pageant for everybody else here. Oh, <laughs> yes, I know, right? Like, like, hold on, I'm not here to sexually assault you. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and so right, that whole story gets also sort of imported in the book of Daniel, uh, where Gabriel and uh, or where uh, Michael shows up again. Um, Gabriel shows up in the New Testament, and then Michael shows up again in the book of Revelation, where, uh, again, there's a war in heaven and he's fighting, you know, these spiritual powers. So you have this big background to the book of Revelation that you then uh, sort of import by default into Kingdom Come. Okay. This, this ancient story of spiritual heavenly powers fighting each other. And um, I think, I mean, so to move away from the scholarly part of it, I think Kingdom Come is one of my favorite comics of all time, not just because it has religious overtones, but because because of the Superman moment at the beginning of that book uh, on the bridge. Yeah. Uh, the, the the look up in the sky yeah. uh, moment is, uh, well, maybe a panel in comic books that can make me cry every time I read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it is, right, this story about our gods. Yeah. Right? And about the fall of our gods and what they... What does it mean when those gods uh, stop doing what they're supposed to? Yeah. Um, and there's also a very sort of Hegelian sense to it, right? That the, the gods produce their anti-form, right? Yes. You have a thesis and antithesis. And in some ways, there's two theses and antitheses working together. There's the superpowered and the human, and then the superpowered good and the superpowered bad. Yeah. And in some ways, they all have to come together at the end yeah. to form the new thesis, mm -hmm. um, which tends to be, I would say, uh, one of the ways that you can secularize um, the apocalyptic narrative is thesis antithesis into this sort of quasi-Hegelian synthesis. I see. Yes. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, totally, yeah. 
so it's you know you have superman and wonder woman at the un at the end of kingdom come and all yeah. of that stuff and uh going to the diner um right. the, the superhero yeah. themed diner diner where yes, yeah. you're just like gods among the men now right there, there's right. that exactly. loss of hierarchical distinction sort of right yeah. exactly and sort of the absorption of the superhero into the into the yeah. everyday and that of course that wonderful image of batman uh, saying to the waitress, I forget, she says, you know, I'm Robin or whatever. And he says, of course you are. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it is sort of this, um, you know, this approach to the apocalyptic narrative, which does sort of take on this, you know, quasi Hegel, you know, Hegel never really said this, but um, the sort of quasi Hegelian synthesis mm-hmm. of opposites. Whereas if you look at, say, the book of Revelation, it is, absolutely not a Hegelian synthesis, mm-hmm. right? It is one of the strongest pictures in the New Testament. I would say one of two great strong pictures in the New Testament, which are definitively the good and the bad will be apart forever, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, even Matthew 25 doesn't go that far in the Greek. And Matthew 25 has uh, has life according to the coming age and fire according to the coming age, but that, that both are everlasting, mm-hmm. um, you know, any more than medieval art and medieval government have the same qualities, you know, they just belong to a certain time period. Yeah. So, uh, but the book of revelation is very clear, you know, uh, day and night forever, they will go into the fire and burn. Yeah. Um, and so you don't get that, although you do get to some degree, the lake of fire and the destruction at the end of the book, yeah. with the, the atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, the sort of the, I guess, antichrist, uh, figure in this would be, mm-hmm. um, captain Marvel, but Shazam, not not the Marvel Captain Marvel, right? Um, right. <laughs> Shazam, uh, who has been kind of brainwashed, I suppose, by by Lex Luthor, and uh, and so he sort of, um, but becomes the kind of hero at the end by sacrificing himself to save right. what remnant of the superheroes are saved uh, from the nu- nuclear holocaust, right? So you, that is a moment of of synthesis and not clear distinction between good and bad. Right, right, yeah, and I wonder if I wonder if in this in that sort of analogy, Luther's actually the Antichrist, and and Shazam's the false prophet. Oh, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. But see, this is what's <laughs> great, though. Um, I would love to do this kind of thing in churches with people, like read books like oh, sure. this, and and use them as avenues to talk about these kinds of conceptions, uh, these theological conceptions, because I, I think, I don't know, that's just my, the way my brain works. And I think it's a fascinating way to, to ponder these ideas. Um, what we've talked about today has been just incredible for me. I wanted to bring up one thing from this, um, from this book. There's like a, a successor to Superman after he sort of abdicates mm-hmm. um, Earth, Magog is that Magog? Yep. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, and is he invented for this comic uh, only, basically? So not only so he was invented originally for this, but then DC did a series that was basically like Kingdom Come sequel. Okay. Where those characters started to show up. Okay. In DC comics, so I think Magog shows up in DC Comics after the fact. Well, at one point they when Superman is kind of reengaged with the world, they have this confrontation and it doesn't end up in a fight really. Um Magog is just sort of shows his disappointment um about why they chose him over Superman, why the world chose him over Superman. Um and he says they chose the man who would kill over the man who wouldn't and now they're dead. <laughs> right. I think it's just one of the, <laughs> I think it's one of the greatest uh, lines in comics actually. Um, uh-huh. um, but it does, I mean, it gets at the way in which we choose the gods that reflect our values. Uh, and, and I right. think that's, that's one of the kind of 
um, I don't know, just theological sorts of uh, benefits that uh, you can get, uh, insights uh, that you can get mm-hmm. um, by engaging with pop culture at this level. Um, uh, you pointed out, I have not read this, but I know that uh, at the end of this month, Amazon is doing a series on uh, Good Omens, the Neil Gaiman oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. apocalyptic mm-hmm. story. So this is uh, not going away, right? This is like right. something that society continually um, engages with. And so, um, Josh, do you have anything else you want to talk um, close up with? I mean, I guess I think, right, this this is to a degree, I mean, this comes to the question of, again, extending our identity, right? So I talked a little bit about that with video games, where mm-hmm. we extend our identity to the small thing, but we also extend our identity to our culture and our, our society, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we're part of something. And it it's not a leap to say that we then take this question of our own destruction, our own death, our own impending death, and write that onto our society. So we ask the question, what happens when I die? Mm-hmm. And we also ask the question, what happens when my society dies? Right. And that that is never going to go away, right? right? Like that question was in a lot of ways either sublimated or satisfied in the in the era of Christendom mm-hmm. through the question of, uh, you know, the, the religious narrative. And to some degree, you have that question uh, sublimated during the early Enlightenment, right, where science will triumph uh, and the species will go on and right. and we will conquer death. Right. And we still have some of that narrative now, uh, you know, uploading our brains to Google or yeah. like the idea that like your presence online means you're never going to die. Well, yeah. <laughs> my father died a couple of years ago. He still has a Facebook account, but he's dead. Yeah. So <laughs> that's not... You know, that, that's that's something of a lie or, or quite a lie, in fact. Um, so we have these competing narratives of in, of immortality and uh, and our death. And one of the things I think that I don't know if this is a direct effect of it because it's on such a long scale. But now that we know that the universe doesn't have a future, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> in the sense that uh, if the scientists are right, which they probably are about dark energy and the fact that our galaxies are speeding away from each other at ever increasing rates and some scientists in the future will not even be able to see other galaxies because right. their light won't reach us, right? That there isn't an endless story to be told. Uh, that we will become more and more well, maybe not more and more, but we will at least return time and time again, I think, to this question of what are we as a species, as a society, as a culture, and what happens when that dies? Mm-hmm. What is there something valuable lost or is it um, is a good riddance, you know, uh, and is, or is it more really more of a mix as something like maybe, you know, Dawn of the Dead tells us right. <laughs> with its critique of consumerism uh, but also their reliance on consumerist products right, to right, survive, right. you know, that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a perennial issue. Uh, and it may be sublimated at times and it may be satisfied at times, but it, it, it's an issue that we're going to continue to uh, at least have to encounter. And asking theological questions about popular culture 
also gives you insight into what we are actually worshiping. And, and I kind of right. maintain that you're never not worshiping. Like, um, there's right. No such, I agree. There's no such thing as that. Right. And so, um, and, and I think that this is, uh, one of the great things I really appreciated uh, meeting you, uh, at the conference. Um, I hope to see you again in the future. Um, please consider yourself a, a welcome guest. Anytime you want to come back and yeah, talk I'd love about to come back anytime you want me. Yeah, this was, this has been really great for me. And so, um, I really appreciate it. Um, Josh, uh, one more time to plug your own podcast. What's it called again? Yeah, so I'm on No Avatars Allowed, and I'm also on our, our PDP-10 podcast, which is sort of a flagship podcast of our All Ports Open network. Uh, and we have some new things coming out. Something actually might be of interest to your listeners. Uh, we have a new podcast that should be coming out in a few months called Illuminated Texts, Okay, where we are reading books that we think are culturally relevant, me and a, a friend of mine who's a Catholic priest. And we're going to do sort of basically an episode on a chapter and give theological feedback essentially to these to these books. Um, and so we're going to be taking suggestions for books. We have our first book lined up. We're going to be doing Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Okay. Uh, and sort of giving theological feedback on a book that relies quite a bit on theology. Okay. Uh, to talk about things. So um, that sort of branches out past our sort of original mandate of gaming. Yeah. Uh, sort of playing with ideas, I guess, is more of the idea. Yeah, no, that's great. That is something right up the alley of, of my listeners, I think. And so I think uh, I I can recommend it without having heard it yet. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll put links to all these kinds of things up. Don't forget uh, the book, No Avatars Allowed, is uh, coming out in October. Uh, and, uh, and also be looking for... Uh, the book you're doing on eschatology and pop culture for um, Matthew Brake's uh, pop culture and her theology series. Um, uh, yeah, and there's, I guess, one more. Uh, this A book I edited a couple years ago, if people are interested in how you might do theology with video games, there's a book called Past the Sky's Rim, The Elder Scrolls in Theology, where I and a few other uh, authors did some chapters where we took a look at the series, The Elder Scrolls, and um, ask theological questions about that stuff. We got a little bit of review bombed on Amazon because it wasn't a book just about the theology of the game uh, uh, by people who I think wanted to write that book themselves. Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> but yeah, that's <laughs> that's the nature of that game, right? And so yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well. Joshua Wise, thank you so much. Um, those of you who are listening, uh, thank you for listening. Please uh, feel free to contact the show if you have any kind of thoughts. We are on Twitter. Joshua is also on Twitter. Um, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, I think it's just Joshua, Joshua w. w. Wise. Okay, yeah, Joshua yeah. W. Wise uh, at Twitter, so you can follow him there. Uh, do feel free to get in touch with all of us. Uh, we love your feedback. This has been a lot of fun, Joshua Wise. Uh, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Oh, I love